0: Our reading this morning is Ruth chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, we would want you to have one. So there's some available um, at the back of the church, so just go and help yourself and you can take that home with you. Um, The Bible is central to everything we do here. The Bible is God's primary way of speaking to his people and it shapes everything we believe and everything we do. Because of this, after the reading, I will say, this is the word of the Lord and we will all respond together, thanks be to God. So. This morning's reading is from Ruth 4 now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there and behold the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by so Boaz said turn aside friend sit down here and he turned aside and sat down and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said sit down here so they sat down then he said to the Redeemer Also Ruth and Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead and in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. <coughs> may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem and may your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son then the women said to Naomi blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him then then naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse and the women of the neighborhood give him a name saying a son has been born to naomi they named him obed he was the father of jesse the father of david now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Claire. Especially, well done for all those names at the end. No, especially because I asked her to read that about five minutes ago. <laughs> so that was pretty good. Uh, if you're visiting with us, if you're new, um, we've been working our way through the book of Ruth uh, during, the, sorry, during the Advent season. Um, the last four weeks, there's four Sundays in Advent, and we've been looking at this Old Testament story of Ruth. Um, I've got a bit of a sore throat, I've been coughing all night, so I might have to cough a lot and drink a lot during this um, or maybe cut it short. Who knows? You can only hope. Um, and before we begin, uh, has anybody seen the new Star Wars yet? Two, two people. Wow, some big fans. Three people. Okay, I have not. Uh, I really want to. Um, but I the, uh, the reason I bring that up is because uh, this is the ninth film in this saga. Apparently, it's the end. But Disney are probably going to keep making more because they like making money. Um, But I like sagas. I like stories that have multiple parts. I like watching a movie that's not the end of the story. Do you know what I mean? Does anyone else resonate with that at all? I really like that idea. I like that um, (coughs) you can get to the end of the movie, and even though things don't look like they're going to resolve or work out well for heroes, that you know that something good is coming in the next part. Uh, So like at the end of the, everyone knows Star If you haven't seen the old Star Wars, you don't care, right? So I can say things about the old ones. Okay, so at the end of The Empire Strikes Back, what happens is that you have this tension where the hero, the supposed hero, Luke Skywalker, he's got his hand cut off, he's just found out that the villain is his dad, he falls out of a spaceship thing, it's terrible. But you know that even though things aren't looking good for the good guys, in the next part, hopefully things are going to be restored and resolved. And this is kind of how it's been for us going through the book of Ruth. Ruth is an Old Testament story, it's centered around three characters. Ruth, the main character, um, her mother-in-law, Naomi, and this guy called Boaz, who we heard a lot about today, Um, and it's a story primarily about how God is, um, through the lives of ordinary people... Is, is weaving history together. It has one story that he's trying to tell. And so we get into this kind of, you could look over the, the boring name bit at the end, right? And we're going to come back to that later on. But, but actually that's really important because that shows that actually through these chance meetings, these, these so-called chance happenings of these people, that God is weaving a story together. And it's all pointing right towards Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, the same town where this story takes place. And we've seen uh, last week that uh, things were kind of left in a bit of a a cliffhanger, right? Ruth has given Boaz this marriage proposal, um, and Boaz uh, has to wait to see if he has responded. Um, So really what I want to look at this morning, if some of you might take notes, that's fine. If you are, our big idea this morning, think about this, is and I'll explain these terms as I go along. Redeeming grace exists to make the name of God great and is more abundant than we could ever imagine. Redeeming grace exists to make the, great, the name of God great and is more abundant than we could ever imagine. So firstly then, let's look at this idea that redeeming grace exists to make the name of God great. What do we mean by that? Well, we saw this cliffhanger last week, and we don't know if Boaz is able, going to be able to go through with the marriage, if he's going to be able to redeem, I don't know if we'll come back to that, if he's going to be able to redeem this situation of, of Naomi, Uh, and Ruth and so we get to chapter 4 and so uh, in chapter 4 the verse 1, we know that that Boaz gets straight to work. Last week we saw that it finished off well. Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law says, hey, don't worry about this I know he didn't say yes right now but he's a man who keeps his word and he's going to get down to business today. He'll do it today and this is exactly what he does. Boaz, he goes straight to the first thing in the morning, goes straight to the city gates and he's ready to get down to business. He's in love. He wants to get things moving. He wants to get things sorted. I've lost my place in my notes already. Um, uh, So he goes down to the city of Gates. And the city of Gates was where in in that world in the ancient Israel where, where business took place. So if you can imagine, if you can imagine, I don't know if you can, like, I'm going to do it with my fingers. It's like this. So you have a passageway with rooms in the other side. Okay, does that make sense? So you have two, two rooms on the other side, which held about 12 people each. And this is where business would take place. It was kind of like the courthouse or kind of like um, city hall, that kind of thing. Public business transactions happened here. And there were people going in and out all the time. The elders of the city sat there. They would make decisions on disputes and all that kind of stuff. So the point is that anything that happened here was final and it was public. There was, no, there was no, nothing was done in secret here. And, and this is where Boaz goes to work. And he sits down at the city gate. He has to get this thing sorted. He has to know, am I, able, going, to, am I going to be able to, to redeem Naomi out of poverty and, and, and out of her widowhood? And more importantly, am I going to be able to marry the woman that I love? And it just so happens that this guy comes along just so happens. We've looked at this idea that there's many things that just so happen, and it's actually God working things together. And this guy that comes along just so happens to be the guy who's first in line in the custom order to be the one to redeem the family. And at first, the conversation's all about Naomi, but it's really Ruth that's on Boaz's heart. Now, it seems like everything is stacked against Ruth, doesn't it? She's poor. She's widow. She's childless. She's a foreigner. She's not only a foreigner, she's a foreigner in the country of her enemies. Remember, she's from Moab and Israel are their enemies. And also her only friend is her mother-in-law. Poor woman. I'm only joking, that's terrible. That's a terrible joke. I actually do love my mother-in-law. But she doesn't really seem to have anyone else that she spends time with. Her companion is her mother-in-law, who's an old widow woman too. And she's all these circumstances against her. And from a human point of view... She's not exactly a high achiever in life, is she? She's not exactly getting ahead, you know? She's not, she's not what we would call successful. And also remember that this is an extremely vulnerable, extremely uh, uh, dangerous and, and difficult time for a vulnerable person like Ruth to, to, to live in. It was, it was the time when there was no real uh, morality, when, when, when people weren't exactly clambering over each other to do the right thing and treat each other well. But Ruth wants to be married. She's fallen in love with Boaz, and Boaz is this Israelite who's a businessman, and he's a bit older than her, and he's wealthy, and he's good in heart, and he loves the Lord. And he, and, and she has, he has caught her eye, but not only that, he has caught, she has caught his eye. But there's so much standing in their way. They both live in the same small town, but, but they're actually miles apart. She's not just a foreigner. She's from Moab. Moab. The enemies of Israel. And remember, the, the Moabite people, they began from this incestuous relationship where, where the, the, the daughter of... We're gonna, there's going to be a lot of weird stuff in my thing today, so just this is not the worst thing that happens today. Uh, the, the, this lot, the daughter of Lot gets him drunk so that she could sleep with her own dad, so that, so that she could have an inheritance of her own, so that her family line would be continued. And this is where the Moabite people begin with. But even through all of this stuff, God is working behind the scenes He's weaving all his plans together. Nothing happens by chance. One of, one of, the, one of the, my teachers I was reading this week, he says this. He says, "Out of a hopeless pile of broken dreams and shattered reputations, there comes a glimmer of light reflecting God's glory." I love that. Out of a, 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 out of a pile a hopeless pile of broken dreams and shattered reputations, there just comes this glimmer of light reflecting God's glory. And this is the way of God, isn't it, right? God formed the universe out of chaos. He made human beings out of the ground. Out of the dirt, he he made human beings. And he's been doing this ever since, right? Out of chaos comes order. Out of death, God brings light. Into the darkness, as we saw earlier, God brings light. That's the way of God. And even though we know that this is what God is up to in this story, even though we know the kind of God he is, there's been a few setbacks along the way. So, just to recap, the book of Ruth, the story of Ruth is a, a story of setbacks. Firstly, this will catch, if you haven't been here, this will catch you up. Firstly, in the first part of the story, <coughs> Naomi and her husband, Elimelech, ha- and their sons have to leave Bethlehem because there's a famine there, setback one. Then Naomi's husband dies. And then the two sons get married, and after they get married, the two sons die. There's two widows suddenly in Naomi's house. And then in chapter 2, Naomi's filled with a new hope. Another Star Wars reference, get it? Uh, some nerds do. Most normal people don't. Um, it, Naomi's filled with this new hope because Boaz appears on the scene. And, and Boaz is someone who is, by law, expected to, to redeem them, to, 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 br- to change their situation from poverty and, 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 and tragedy into one of prosperity. But he doesn't propose to Ruth. And he doesn't make any moves, at least that's the way it seems at first. And in chapter 3, we saw last week, Naomi and, and Ruth make this risky move and, and Ruth goes down to Boaz working on the farm and she kind of proposes to him and says, hey, I, I want you to spread your wing over, to, over me as your husband. And, and just when things seem to be coming together, another obstacle appears. There's another man who is first in line to marry Ruth. But of course, Boaz is so honorable. <coughs> I beg your pardon. But Boaz is so honourable that even though he loves Ruth, he won't do anything dishonest or underhand. He won't just ignore the customs. He's not gonna break the law. Even though he might lose Ruth, this woman that is precious to him that he loves, he has to do things the right way. And so he goes to speak to this guy who's first in line at the city gates. Now if this was a if this was if this was a romantic comedy, this would be the, the point in the movie where we'd be thinking, are are they actually gonna to get together? Like, you know, you, these movies are all the same. All romantic comedies are all the same. It's going well. Then something bad happens, and you're like, oh, they might not get together, even though you know it's always going to be a happy ending. if Boaz and Ruth were in a movie, and they were going to end up together, they would have to find a way around these religious and, and, and legal customs. They would have to find a, a way around this other guy. And so Boaz calls him over. And tries to figure out, he's really trying to figure out, first of all, if he has any good intentions at all. Because he has these responsibilities as a redeemer, right? By law, he was supposed to uh, buy Naomi's land and look after her. And so Boaz, very shrewdly, if you, if you have the Bible open, look at verse 3. Boaz says to her, or sorry, Boaz says to him, this, this other guy, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling a parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, the first thing you might be thinking is, hold on a second. Does this mean that Naomi's actually owned land this whole time? Because Naomi's selling the land? Does this mean that she's a landowner? How has she been so impoverished? Well, yes and no. So her husband Elimelech died. Elimelech was the landowner. And so the land passed to her. So technically she did own it. And this plot of farmland was part of a big common field where all the crops had been grown outside the town. And so technically this bit of land did belong to Naomi, but she was so poor that she couldn't afford to employ anyone to work it or uh, or to buy any grain to start the farm or anything like that. So Boaz fills this guy in the situation. He says, basically, just so you know, there's uh, land available to our family and you've got first dibs on it. It's yours if you want it. And so, of course, this guy wants it. Why wouldn't he? It sounds like a great deal. As far as he's concerned, I mean, as far as he's concerned, this redemption is an easy one. He gets the land, and Naomi is old, so she can't have any more children that would inherit the land back from him. It's essentially, he's getting land that he would add to his portfolio with no strings attached. And Boaz is very shrewdly trying to see his intentions, it's almost almost as if Boaz wants to work out what kind of guy he really is. And it's at this point that Boaz mentions the catch. Verse five, he says, By the way, the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance. You see the land and Ruth are a package deal. And suddenly this doesn't seem like such a good deal for this guy anymore. It's not such a good prospect to our Redeemer. See, the whole point of of this redemption process is to perpetuate, is to continue the family name of the person that died. So a man would die, and uh, then a close relative, usually a brother, would uh, would legally marry his wife and would provide an inheritance for for her children. And if she didn't have any children, then they would have children together so that the, the, the dead man's family name would continue. And essentially... This guy realizes that if he takes on this land, he's going to have to marry Ruth and have children. And so eventually her children will grow up and one day he would lose the land again. So it doesn't seem like such a good deal for him anymore. So when this guy realizes that there's actual responsibility involved, he starts backtracking. He's like, well, I get the land, but also I don't really get it. I have to marry a Moabite, foreign woman, and then I have to have a baby with her. And then one day, that baby won't even be called my baby. He'll be called the, the, the baby of Malon, her dead husband. No, I, I, can't, I don't want to take that responsibility. And here's something important to note. There's a cost involved to redeeming. And the cost isn't to the person who's being redeemed. The cost is to the one who does the redeeming. It's sacrificial. It only benefits the one who is redeemed. And that's why when we talk about as Christians, we talk about us being redeemed because Christ has bought us out of our slavery. He's bought us out of our tragedy. He's made us his bride. He's provided for us an inheritance that we'll have forever. And the cost to him was his own life. And here we have a glimpse of this glory of, of grace compared to the glory of the Old Testament law. You see, the law is represented by the responsibility of this first guy, this first Redeemer's duty to Ruth. You see, the law is good and right and true. The law provides for Naomi. The law makes sure that she doesn't continue being a widow and makes sure that she has an inheritance and is looked after. But the law doesn't provide this guy with the desire to redeem Ruth. You see, he's motivated by duty and not by delight. Boaz operates out of delight, not duty. He's the opposite. He delights in Ruth and he's going to do whatever it takes to be with her and make sure that she and her family are safe. And so he's willing to pay the cost. And God has made it so that grace saves. And Boaz steps up and takes Ruth under his wing. And so the law only goes so far while grace redeems fully. And so it is with our redemption, isn't it? Like we try to we, we try to think of every other conceivable way, every other conceivable thing to put our hope in. But it just ends up like the first redeemer in verse six saying, I cannot redeem it. That's what he says, I cannot redeem it. Nothing else that we could ever put our hope in outside of Jesus can pay the cost of our redemption. And in Ruth's case, it may have looked like there were multiple options because, yeah, there's Boaz, and he's the ideal choice, but, but also this other guy. So at the very least, she's still going to have an inheritance, and Naomi's going to be looked after. And it looked like maybe she had multiple options. But, but the truth is, there was only ever really one person who was going to redeem her. And it's the same for us. It's Christ alone who does everything needed to secure, secure our salvation, including paying the great cost of his life. So, the decision's made: the first guy can 't redeem Naomi and Ruth, and Boaz does. and then this, you might have caught this when Claire was reading it. This really strange kind of thing happens. The guy like takes off his sandal, gives it to Boaz, and actually, scholars don 't really know why they did this. The best guess is that. As in a, a transaction, as something was being uh, bought or transferred to another person, you would take off your shoe and give it to the person. So can you imagine that? Like you're just signed on a house. It's like, well, here's my, sh-. you know, it's a kind of weird thing and, and no, one, no one really knows why it's there or where it came from. But anyway, he takes off his sandal and the deal is done. It signifies that it's, that it's over. And so the land and Ruth are now Boaz's. They pass to Boaz. And listen to what Boaz says in verses nine to ten. Boaz, <coughs> beg your pardon. Boaz said to the elders, "That's the elders of the village and all the people. You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and Malon. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife." to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Now that's significant. What Boaz is saying, he's saying that he will, not, he will take on his responsibility not to make sure that, that his family name is perpetuated, but to, but to make sure that the names of Elimelech and Malon and Chilion are, 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 are perpetuated. It's selfless. It's selfless It's a selfless act. He's putting the needs of his future wife and her family and her dear mother-in-law before his own. Like it's it's hard enough whenever you get married like married people you know it's weird whenever you have to take on somebody else's family that's kind of weird and there's all lots of weird people to get to know and learn but imagine like taking on the dead ones too you're like suddenly like they're going to be part of my family their names going to be remembered and it's important that he mentions the names. Because what about the other guy? The other the first guy, the other redeemer? What was, what was his name? It's not there. We don't know. We don't know his name. The author doesn't tell us. We get the names of the dead guys who aren't even in the story anymore, but we don't get the name of the guy who was supposed to do the redeeming. His name wasn't perpetuated. <coughs> and when Boaz called him over to the gate, he called him friend. It says, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. And in Hebrew, this language, the, the, the language it was written in that that word friend means something like so-and-so. So he's like, hey Mr. So-and-so, come on, we would say your man. Like, it's your man, come on over. Like, it's that kind of like generic, don't know your name, don't need to know your name kind of thing. His name is not perpetuated, his name's not carried on. But Ruth says, Naomi's is, Elimelech's is, Malon's is, and Chilean's is. Why? Because Boaz honored them by honoring God. And because he honored God in this way, his name is continued on. And then the name of his son and his son and his son until we get to Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. You see, Boaz's act of redemption here was really about bringing glory to the name of Jesus. God's own son, the world's savior. And this is why any of us are redeemed. Not just so that we can be forgiven of our sin and, and have fulfilled with true life in Christ and, and have an eternal inheritance. Those are benefits that are given to us through our redemption. But the real reason for our redemption is so that the name of God can be made great and glorified. So that God's name is magnified. We're redeemed so that the lordship of Jesus would just permeate into every nook and cranny of the whole world, into every sphere of reality. Malachi, an Old Testament prophet, he says this. God says through him in this, For my name will be made great among the nations, says the Lord. There's not one person who has ever lived or ever will live that will not one day know that Jesus Christ is Lord. Think about that for a second. His glory will be seen and recognized by everybody. Everyone. Another prophet, Habakkuk, says, For the earth will be filled with the, glory, uh, the, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God is revealing his glory, and he primarily does this by redeeming his people, by buying them out of slavery, by, by bringing his children from spiritual death to spiritual life. And one day... Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You know, Mr. So-and-so, your man, your your first man, he didn't want to redeem Ruth because it it would affect his inheritance, because it would cost him too much. It would cost him his inheritance. He thought it would be too costly to do the right thing. And you might be thinking, well... Maybe if he had known that this was part of God's big plan to, to bring uh, this, the Messiah, Jesus, into the world, then maybe he, would have, maybe he would have changed his idea. Maybe he would have done it. But I, I think that in some sense he did know because he was, he was of Israel and he would have known all the promises, all the Old Testament promises, that the children of Israel, the descendants of, of Abraham, of which he is one, would be the way that God brings his blessing to the whole world. And he knew that God was working out his glory in the world through his people. But because he couldn't see the details in that moment, he chose not to believe. He chose not to act. And many of our choices in life, I think, are because we don't always see the details of what God is doing. Right here in this instance... And when we can't see the details, that's when we really need to believe it and know that God is working salvation out in the world and he's making his name great. You're not always going to see, how is this going to glorify God? What, God, what are you do? Do you ever ask yourself, God, what are you doing? I'll tell you a story. Um, it's not funny yet, but it might be in a couple of days. Uh, filling the thing, filling the baptism pool and uh, at half one on Saturday morning, I woke up and remembered that I hadn't turned the water off. And so I came up here in my pajamas, and the floor was completely flooded because it overflowed. And in that moment, I was just like, apart from beating myself up, I was thinking, God, why is this happening? Like, I'm here in my jammies at three o'clock in the morning pushing water out the door. And uh, I was just like, God, why are are you doing this? How is this for your glory? All all we're trying to do here is is to glorify you. We're going to baptize people and this is all for you. And then why is this happening? Why is this setback happening? And that's so often how we feel, isn't it? God, why are you doing this? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening to me? It's in those moments that we have to believe that God is working out his plan of redemption for the whole world. And when we trust God and live in obedience to him, you know what the Bible says in 1 Peter 2? It says that the world will see our righteousness. That means they'll, they'll see uh, how we live in faith. And that they will then glorify God. You see, God's redeeming grace is about making his name great and bringing glory to him. God's redeeming grace is about making his name great. And even when we can't see all the details, we know even from reading the book of Ruth, that God is weaving all things together. You can't even see all the details of your life being weaved by God to make his name great. Secondly then, God's redeeming grace is far more abundant than we can ever imagine. It seems now that the way it is clear for, for Ruth and Boaz to get married, the deal has been done. And, and the story, amazingly, ends in the opposite way that it started. It started with famine and death and death and death again. It started with poverty and now it ends with, with birth and with celebration and with marriage. And these last verses of this book, we get an insight into Boaz's family history and a glimpse into the future of his history as well. This, this, this book was probably written, some people maybe say, in the, in the time of King David, so a couple of generations after Ruth and Boaz. <coughs> And so they're able to look back in history and they're also able to look forward a little bit too. They look, they look back to look forward. Now, remember when Naomi and Ruth first came back to Bethlehem and Naomi says to the, the women of the town, she says, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Well, now the story's reversed, isn't it? She's not empty anymore. She's full. She's got a family and she's got a future, an inheritance. And Maybe but when she came back to Bethlehem, she was like me at you know, 3 o'clock on Saturday morning. God, why are you doing this? I'm not comparing what happened to me as tragic as what happened to Naomi when she lost her two sons and her husband. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying my attitude was the same. And if you had seen me, you probably would have thought that I had lost everyone close to me. Um, but but, but you, we kind of do that. We go, God, why is this happening? She couldn't have known that God was working all these things together so that not only would his name be made great, but so that she would see how amazing and wonderful and abundant his grace and love is. Ruth and Boaz get married, and they have this baby boy. It's the ideal, like, happy ending, you know, Hollywood ending, isn't it? Yet the story of Ruth... Uh, and Boaz is a love story. It's not a Hollywood love story. See, it begins with, it's not, it begins with Ruth's commitment love to Naomi. This idea, it's in Hebrew, is this word called hesed. It's how the Bible describes God's love towards us, this steadfast love that can't be broken. And, and it, it, then it continues with the love and commitment that Ruth and Boaz have for one another. They hesed each other. But the real beginning and the real ending of the book of Ruth is the love commitment that God has for us. That's what all of this is pointing to. And as we've seen over the past few weeks, there's a lot going on. There's layers and layers to this story to be uncovered. And we've only really scratched the surface over the past four weeks. And Ruth and Boaz couldn't have seen what was going on. Maybe they knew the promises. Maybe they knew that God was somehow going to bring redemption to the world through the descendants of Abraham. But they could never have known that it was, it was going to be through them. It's like God had this plot line running from eternity past to eternity future and that plot line runs right through these two people ruth and boaz this this young moabite woman marrying this older jewish man in a time and place of violence and oppression you see the good news for us is that the lord has a way of making a way where there is no way right the Lord makes a way where there is no way, and the fact that Ruth has a baby speaks volumes about the abundant grace of God. Back in Moab, Ruth and Malam were married for ten years, and she never got pregnant. And and, and it, it's not like we're pretty confident we knew from history. It's not like back in it's not like now where you know, you might choose not to have kids. It's like no no. It's actually very shameful for a woman not to have children. And I wonder how many times she wondered why she couldn't have children, or how many times she thought, God, why is this happening? Or how many times she said, it's not fair that that all my friends get to have babies, and I don't get to have children. And then her husband dies, and she commits to come to Bethlehem with Naomi, and maybe at that point, she thinks, well, I'll probably never have kids. That's it, that's it, that's it, over. I'm going to live with this shame for the rest of my life. There's no way that she could have known that God was going to redeem her situation in such an abundant way. And then fast forward to now, I love this. I love that it focuses in on Naomi, her mother-in-law. Naomi, just like a, you know, like you know, grannies are like, I'm going to see my ki- my, my 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 kids' grand, I'm going to see my kids' grandparents today, my in-laws today. But you know what grannies are like. Naomi's holding this baby in her lap, and you can just imagine her just like, so proudly, like, just beaming, big smile. That Naomi, this empty, old, and bitter woman, is now nursing her grandson with her family line secured and provision for her old age. It's incredible. It seemed impossible, but God has made a way. And sometimes we just think these things happen by chance, don't we? And it's a picture of the abundant grace of God to us in Jesus. Let me explain what I mean. See, we were empty. We had nothing. We were bitter. We were in a living death. We were walking around in darkness. And then God pouring out his grace and love into the world. A world who rejected him, by the way, sent another baby to Bethlehem. And this baby would be the true and better redeemer. This, the, the one who, who, who come to put an end to all pain and an end to all suffering. The one who can redeem us out of our sin if we just have faith in him like our example like Ruth is take Ruth as our example just place ourselves take shelter under his wings god took on flesh so that we could be redeemed the baby jesus isn't just a baby it's god in human form ephesians 2 says this but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead and our trespasses and sins made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and has raised us up to sit with him in the heavenly places. This is the grace of God. He's the one who restores our fortunes. He gives us a new family. He gives us a new future. He puts us in a position of honor just like the one that's given to Jesus. Isn't that incredible? And I love this prayer that the women of Bethlehem pray over Naomi in verse 15. They say, Blessed be be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. And they don't even know how right they are. This baby is named by, these women are, are sent, this is what's crazy about this, the women of the village, I don't know how they get to do this, but the women of the village get to name the baby, right? That sounds risky to me, but anyway, that's how you end up with a name like Obed. <laughs> um, this baby, they give it the name Obed, and, and they're praying that this baby would, would this, they're, praying this, uh, they're praying that God has not left her without a redeemer, and may his name, may, may God's name be renowned, right? And they name this baby Obed, and, and this baby just happens to grow up to be the father of To Jesse. And Jesse just so happens to have a son called David, who just so happens to go from being a shepherd in a field to being the king of Israel. And then this guy just so happens to be the direct uh, ancestor of Jesus. And of course, none of this just happens. It's all part of God's plan. And and then the author of Ruth wants us to see that it's all part of God's plan. And that's why they show us this family line after baby Obed, but also before him too, right? So the witnesses, the witnesses who were at the city gate, they, they, they pray that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah, who, who built up the house of Israel. Uh, Ruth and Leah, if you don't know the history, Ruth and Leah, uh, they're, through the deception of their father, ended up both being married to Jacob. Two, two women being married to one man. And Jacob, uh, his name was eventually changed to be Israel. He's the founding father. He's the one that this, this, the, the people of God are named after. And these two women, Ra- Rachel and Leah, they're the matriarchs. They're the one who the, the house of God was, was built up on. So, so really, they're talking about the nation. And then they mention Tamar. Now, Tamar, this is when they mention her, they're talking about their particular tribe, the tribe of Judah. A long time before this, you can read about this in um, Genesis 38, if you so wish. It's a pretty interesting and colorful story. So a long time before this, Tamar, Tamar was married to Judah's son. Judah was <coughs> Jacob's son. And uh, uh, Judah's son died. So we know from the book of Ruth, there should have been this redemption process. So uh, Ruth's, uh, sorry, uh, Judah's second son marries Tamar by means of redeeming her, but he doesn't want to have a baby with her, so he uses some um, creative means to make sure that he doesn't have a baby with her. You can read that for yourself, Genesis 38, to make sure that he didn't have a baby with her. Anyway, then he dies too, and then when Judah's third son was old enough to get married, Judah uh, wouldn't let him marry Tamar because he thought Tamar was jinxed, right? And so he didn't want to lose another son. And so Tamar, who's, who's widowed and childless, in this position of shame, she takes on matters into her own hands. So she dresses her as a prostitute and, uh, he doesn't, he, she doesn't, so that he can't recognize her. And then he, she sleeps with Judah, her father-in-law, uh, and she keeps his staff and his signet ring until he comes back and can pay her, right? And then word got out that Tamar was pregnant. And Judah, who's kind of like the elder of the village, he's raging. He's like, Tamar's pregnant, she's not married, let's burn her at the stake. And then at the last minute, they're bringing out the wood, they're piling on the fire. And then at the last minute, Tamar brings out the staff and the signet ring and says, uh, the father of my baby is the one who holds these things. And it forces him to repent in front of the whole village, Both Tamar and Ruth are childless widows and foreigners who find themselves alone and vulnerable. Both should be redeemed and both take courageous action to make it happen. They've both been hurt and they don't wallow in their victimhood. They're brave, they're courageous and they stand up for what they know is right. And no wonder these villagers think of Tamar when they see Ruth. And if we look at at Matthew chapter 1, we see the family line of Jesus, which includes Tamar and Ruth. But we also see that Boaz's mother was Rahab. You can read about that in Joshua chapter 2. And she was a prostitute too. And she was a foreigner too. And she was redeemed and brought into the people of God. And these incredible women who, in ancient times, they shouldn't even be included in history lines, in family lines, because they're women. But they're not just women. They're women with a past. They're women with history. They're women with a stigma attached to them. They're women with scandals surrounding them. And and I think there's a couple of reasons. I was asking myself, why are these, why is it that the author of Ruth and Matthew, when he's writing the history of Jesus, tells us about these incredible women? Why does he put them in here? And I think there's two reasons. Firstly, including these women in the the family history of Jesus prepares us to deal with the way that Jesus is conceived and, and brought up. See, people questioned who Jesus' father was. Actually, some historians at the time called him the son of a Roman soldier, which is kind of like it's like kind of, calling Mary a, a, a loose woman or a prostitute. That was like a derogatory term because of the nature of what Roman soldiers like. He's the son of a Roman soldier. He was despised because Mary wasn't married, and these women are included to make it crystal clear that God delights in despised things. Just like Ruth, he takes this these despised women and through his grace brings down the powerful and raises up the weak. And the second reason I think we're told about these women is to show us that there's no sin so great that God can't forgive and no brokenness so big that God can't redeem. So much brokenness. So much pain and, it's, and dysfunction and scandal and it's right there in the family line of Jesus. There's no situation that God can't redeem you from. You're never too far gone to be out of God's reach. His redeeming grace has no bounds. And maybe you think, I'm beyond redemption. Maybe you think, well, you know, it's too late for me. Can I just assure you that with God, you're never too far from Him? You see, spiritually, we're all poor, widowed Moabites. We have nothing really, to offer God. We, we have no hope of redeeming ourselves, religiously, spiritually, whatever. We're all unclean and unworthy, just like Ruth was. And yet, because God is full of grace and kindness, he comes to us, and he dignifies us, and he gives us worth. He provides his own flesh and blood by dying on the cross to pay for our sins. I heard someone say this week that, that, that Jesus vulnerable in a manger is god with us and jesus vulnerable on a cross is god for us incredible you see we always feel and we always stumble when it, when we're faced with the forces of evil and our own sinfulness but jesus doesn't feel he conquers them he conquered them he satisfied the wrath of god and we're we're united to him in faith into a relationship that is more profound and more permanent and more and deeper than a marriage why? So that the riches of his grace would be known by everyone. And this is really good news. Whatever you're holding on to that's holding you back from Jesus, can I just encourage you to let it go? We don't need to hold on to him because he holds on to us. And Sometimes you feel like you're like on a you know, white knuckle ride just, just, just like by my fingernails trying to hold on to my faith. Jesus holds on to you. His, uh, whatever you're holding on to that's, that's not of God, it's okay, you can just let it go and repent of that. God's grace is more, ab- more than abundant to cover it. His redeeming grace is more abundant than we can ever imagine. And there's one final thing I want to say before I finish. There are so many uh, great examples that we can take from Ruth. Her faith, her determination, the steadfast love that has said that she shows. Um, And those are all great examples, and we should strive to seek to follow those examples. Uh, Whenever we're trying to live lives that look look like Jesus, we could do a lot worse than try and follow the example of Ruth. But maybe it's not the example of Ruth that we're supposed to notice, right? Maybe it's how she represents Jesus in the story. Think about this. Ruth is the one who dies so others can live. She gave up her life so that Naomi could have life. She gives up everything to come to Bethlehem to live in the land of her enemies for the good of her mother-in-law who she loves. Um, uh, One teacher puts it this way. Everything that Ruth has done from the first scene until now has led to the possibility of, of the birth of this child of hope. It's Ruth's faithfulness, kindness, Loyalty to Naomi, in a word Ruth's said, has led to this outcome. It's Ruth's sacrificial, self-given up, loyal commitment of love that brings new life and a secure future for Naomi. And this is what Jesus does for us. He gives up his life. He comes to live in a land of his enemies. The word became flesh and, and, and made his home among us. God stoops low, steps out of eternity and into creation. Can you imagine that? The humility of that. To become a tiny baby. That's what Jesus does for us. To to grow up with one purpose. To die on a cross. And the Bible says it was because of the the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. This is why we lit the candle of love today. Today. It's, the candle doesn't mean anything. It's just a symbol. It's a way to cause us to reflect in the love of Jesus at this time of year. That's all. Don't read too much into it. But this, this love that this candle represents, that's worth spending an eternity considering, an eternity thinking about. This steadfast love that Jesus had for us and, and not just demonstrated by being born as a baby in a manger, but, but, but by giving his life up on a cross to die for you. And that's what we're going to celebrate now. Um, we're going to do what we do every Sunday. Um, we're going to uh, take communion together. You might know it as the Eucharist, you might know it as communion, you might know it as the Lord's Supper, whatever, it's all the same. And Jesus gave us the, these symbols, this bread and the wine. He didn't, just give us, he didn't just give us a bunch of words to say, oh, remember me in this way. He gave us symbols like, like communion and like baptism visceral, tangible things that we, we were caused to imagine and, and stir our senses and remember what it cost for him to redeem us, to bring us into his security, into his family. And so he gives us bread, which represents his body, and then how his body was, 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 was beaten and, and torn and whipped and kneeled to a cross, and then and, and wine, which, which represents his blood that was spilled and his blood that was shed out. And the good news is that he did this for you and he did this for me, and so if you, if, you, if you don't trust in Jesus, if you don't know him, now's a good time to do that. This is what Jesus did for you. So if you're a Christian, we'd love you to come and take part in this. If you're not, just stay where you are. And uh, this wouldn't make sense because it's kind of a public declaration of, of your faith in Jesus. It's a meal for Jesus followers. So if you're, you're trusting Jesus and you're following him, then by all means come to the table. I'm going to pray for us and uh, the guys are going to come back up. And then just feel free to come and break off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine, and, and share the Lord's Supper together. Let me pray.